Howdy, I'm Kate Kavanaugh, and you're listening to the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast, where we're laying the groundwork for our land, ourselves, and for generations to come by looking at the way every thread of life is connected to one another. Communities above ground mirror the communities below the soil, which mirror the vast community of the cosmos. As the saying goes, as above, so below. Join me as we take a curious journey into agriculture, biology, history, spirituality, health, and so much more. I can't wait to unearth all of these incredible topics alongside you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast. I am your host, Kate Kavanaugh, and it has been a while since I have said these words. I have a confession to make. I fell off the podcast wagon. Uh, It's only happened once before, and it has been my intention from the get-go that we would release a podcast pretty much every single week, and that is still my intention. I did, however, fall off. And in what is a very classic response for me in that freeze where I had fallen off, it was self-perpetuating. And I just had a lot of troubles getting back on the wagon. And I've been thinking about why that is. And I think it's a couple of things. I think, first of all, that that freeze response does sort of self-propagate for me. But I also think that There are times in our lives when we're on an inhale and times in our life when we're on an exhale. And I needed to take a big, deep breath and to explore both where I wanted this podcast to go and to kind of get outside of some of the reading that I had been doing and into some different spaces and to allow maybe a little bit of boredom and a lot of curiosity to guide me into some different spaces. And I also needed some time to consider some things that were going on in my life and to give that a little bit of space. And as I was on my walk yesterday, and and this is an important thing to note, is that when I fall off one wagon, I always try to strengthen that I am on other wagons. And so I've been keeping up with walking four to eight miles a day and keeping up with eating food that makes my body feel good, things like that. But I was thinking about what it would mean to get back on the wagon. And I knew that it was going to require a push and spent many years in various forms of of therapy and of talking about the way that I respond to stimuli and to pressure. And one of the things that's come out over the years is that I often take a, a harsher approach with myself when I need something gentle. I call this the the carrot and the stick, right? And what I was thinking about on my walk is that in many ways, this hiatus I was very gentle with myself. I gave myself the carrot. I didn't berate myself for falling off. I recognized that there were several different things at play in what was going on in my life and in my work life, especially in assessing what I want to be doing, which is unequivocally this. I absolutely adore doing this. But wanting to 
give myself the space I needed to take that breath in and to do some exploring of some other work outside of the the outside of my wheelhouse. And so I got a really incredible chance to do that. And there was a lot of gentleness there. And I knew that to get back on the wagon, I was going to need a big push from myself, a little bit of that stick. And I think that there's a lot to be said for balance as something that isn't static, but is fluid, that Sometimes it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and my approach to getting back on the wagon has been that. That being said, I was still recording during my hiatus, so I have lots of exciting interviews coming up for you, some twists, some turns, some surprises, and I'm hoping that we can really find a space of intimacy in what is coming up, two two different things actually. I hope that we can find a space of intimacy and of really taking that overarching view where we can connect some some big dots and, and weave a big web. And so I kind of want to toggle between and oscillate between the micro and the macro in some of these upcoming episodes and explore some topics that I think weave into all of this and sort of get at some of these deeper questions that I know I'm asking and maybe maybe you are too. With that, there are some new ways to support the podcast. We have I have a Substack and there will be more writing coming out and a pay, a Patreon where you can support the podcast as well as just a one-time tip jar if you kind of want to leave a tip. And what I'll say is that I'm really pivoting into the space where this is becoming the main part of my career and what I'm doing. And it certainly takes up that time because I want to give a very different style of interview with some very different guests. And it is just such a pleasure to take my time with this. So if you feel called to support to be in that reciprocity, then it is deeply appreciated. And if you don't, there are no concerns. This is part of my effort to keep the podcast free and this information flow between us. I have a very special guest for you all today, and this guest is near and dear to my heart. He is the incredible, the ineffable Fred Provenza. I have been in communication with Fred for quite a few months, exploring some of the things that we ended up talking about on this episode. And even just that sliver of communication has been one of my greatest pleasures in life. I have been familiar with Fred's work for a long time, and Fred is very prolific in the interviews and the talks that he's given. He has put a lot of effort into open sourcing the information that is in his book, Nourishment, and to his work that he has done across his career at Utah State University. And I really wanted to find, as I so often do, a new space with Fred that he hadn't explored as much in conversation. And Fred and I landed on really beginning to look deeper into mystery and this sense of grappling with the unknown. And I think that we are at a place in 
time and culture where many of us are grappling with the unknown. And so I can't think of a more beautiful topic with a more beautiful human than Fred. One of the things that came to light in this interview that I didn't quite expect was Fred's trajectory as an educator and in the education system and as a student of life. And I think that there was a confluence there for me as he has been a great mentor and teacher to many, but has really worked to change the way that he views how we teach and invites people into conversation and into nuance and into exploration and curiosity for dialogue where we are all learning together. And I found that exploration particularly poignant for some of the things we're going to be exploring down the road on the podcast and also just for myself there was a healing component to hearing the way that Fred invites conversation around some of these deeper topics. I can't tell you just how much I loved this interview. And my only concern being is that I think sometimes I spend so much time with material and with the work of a person that I develop an intimacy where Maybe I I glaze over. I have already internalized deeply some of those topics. And so if I have missed something, I want to remind you that Fred has been on many, many podcasts and I really encourage a deep dive into his work. And I especially invite you to listen to the new audio version of nourishment, which Fred himself narrates. And as you are about to hear, Fred has a warm and inviting and delightful way of speaking that really brought the book to life. And also, he has some new material in there that I think is truly not to be missed. And I just can't even tell you how dear this interview is to my heart. And what an incredible human I think this this person that we call Fred is. Um, I can't wait for you guys to listen. And I will say, if you enjoy the contents of this episode or any other episodes, if you could share with your friends or family or give it a shout out on social media or if you would be so kind as to leave a rating and review, this really helps other people come into this space of storytelling that we are in the process of building together. So I appreciate each and every one of you, and I am looking forward to what we have coming up. And without further ado, can I just introduce the absolutely wonderful Fred Provenza? Okay, this cultural inflection in time and space, then um, then you come to appreciate, hmm, there's really nothing sacred about it, although we think it's sacred, you know? We, how many people have been killed over cultural inflections, right? Yeah. This is the way that it, it is, and whether they're killed literally or killed uh, metaphorically, huh? The spirit gets gets killed in a person. It, it can happen, and so uh, anyway, it's... Uh, Oh, that's all that's interesting deal. And and working with the animals, 
starting with the goats and then all the, the other work we did with wild and domestic animals, just thinking about us and thinking, you know, we're really no different. We're learning too. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we're being influenced mm-hmm. by by the time and place that we're born and, and conceived from conception. We know that. And we were showing that in studies. And it was a lot of fun to do that. But it was really caused me to reflect a lot in good ways. But to a point you were making about loving to learn, I used to think that I was so interested in everything. And I thought, but you can't study everything. It was a big enough or just to try to study what we were studying and do a good job. But I thought you can read about everything. You can read about it all. And then you can think about, well, how does that relate to? So I love physics. I, you know, in high school and college, we've been taught about Newtonian physics. F equals MA kind of deterministic stuff. I didn't even realize there was this whole quantum area of, of, of amazing kind of universe and then relativistic physics that Einstein got into. So when I started reading about that, it was like, wow, this is so cool. And I was writing papers. I have a friend who, you know, when you're doing research that that uh, is different and stuff, you get asked to, to write a lot of review papers. And this friend used to say book reports, more book reports, you know, <laughs> book reports on all this stuff. And it was good. But you get trying to think, well, how, how do I say it in a different way than I haven't already said it 10 times before? So I started writing papers like the physics of foraging mm. and just talking about Newtonian physics, relativistic physics, quantum physics, and then relating that to foraging and saying, you know, there's parallels here, if you think about it, in terms of of all this stuff. So it, it was it was fun to do all that kind of business as well along. But I think that 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 quest to try to understand um, understand, huh? I'm gonna yeah. tell you something, Kate, and you you'll for sure want to cut this out of your cut this out <laughs> of your edit it out, but I just have this. <laughs> My daughter sent me uh sent me a thing. A text a while back said the the three phases of life. Phase one, birth. Phase two, what the fuck is this? Phase three, (laughs) death. And I just thought about that and laughed about that so much because in a way, what is this? What what is this? And it is amazing. What is this? Edit that out. Edit that out. Bleep out the but it's so true. You know, it's like where are we? What is this? What? You know, it's amazing mystery, huh? It is and, an incredible mystery. And, it, and and I think you always relate it as, you know, we're cosmic voyagers with amnesia into this <laughs> earth. And and I think when you when you awake, there is this, well, what is all of this? What am I doing here? Yeah, absolutely. And it is mystery, huh? And it's amazing. It's so beautiful. And in, in uh, the beauty and the mystery and the wonder of it all. And the older I get, the more I, I really relax into that and, and very comfortable with uncertainty and the unknown, you know, and just saying, and I often begin, well, I put this in a note to you, but I think I often, if I, when I give uh, webinars or talks or whatever, like to start by saying, you know, if we just all assume that that we really don't know anything and just have a conversation, don't take any of this seriously, 
that was the tone that that class was in. And what it does is it frees you to just speak from your heart. You don't, you're not trying to, you know, I'm the big know-it-all and this is the way it is. And then you get locked into a position and you, sooner or later, if you either deny everything else or you realize you can't, nothing is totally defensible, huh? I mean, it's always, there's more and more and more to what we think we know. And uh, that's a kind of beauty of, in its own way. It's a I, kind of, I I think that is actually part of the joy of learning is that the more I learn, the more I learned how much I have to learn. And absolutely. That, absolutely. that is and it and it allows that ego to dissolve and for you to just be a, a curious voyager. And I think too, actually one way in which I kind of wanted to start this was to recapture the awe of childhood, the awe and wonder of it all, instead of the need to describe it and contain it, uh, but to let it in. And I was struck as we were, as we've had this beautiful correspondence by talking about being children and what we would lay in bed at night and think about. And I was struck because we were separated by time, by some number of decades and by <laughs> place, right? By we place, are. by the culture that we were in, but less in space, both in Colorado as kids. And you were dreaming of, and I have this, you were dreaming of what is nothing? And if nothing were, what would nothing be? And I was dreaming of what an infinite universe would mean. And I used to picture this little bird flying through space and hitting a wall. And I would wonder, well, what would be behind that wall? Yes, it's amazing. And now, uh... You know, those, those thoughts that you have as a child and uh, and as we were both saying to just laying in bed, I used to lay in bed at night just in rapture almost uh, going so far, just wondering what what would, you know, what is nothing? And I don't know, it, it can sound trivial. It's not, though, because you're just, mm -hmm. you know, well, how and the deep mystery, huh, of the source of anything. No one knows that, huh? We we say God. God yeah. is a name. God is a word. God is an idea. But it's references to something that transcends all thought. Although a, a lot of times when you hear people talk, God is this, God is that, God is, and it probably mm. is all of that. But the mystery, ultimately, that's it's mystery. As they say, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no tongue has soiled that that ground, huh? Yes. And I think a, a mystery we we try to touch and perhaps can't, right? It it, it right. is eternal in its Absolutely. mysteriousness. And what you, is life? What is nothing? What is everything? Right, right. It's that's exactly. And uh, in our correspondence, you were you were touching on some of that too. And words words are are uh, they're the best we can do, right? These little words that that we do, but. <laughs> But really, even even with our own personal experience of the environment here and now, it's very difficult to mm -hmm. to try to capture in words. I mean, some people do it better than other. And poetry is a wonderful way, and images, uh, paintings, and so forth are ways. But but ultimately, um, it's impossible to capture. And then, especially when you start talking. Like, I think I put it in one of those notes, what Joseph Campbell used to say mm -hmm. of his friend Heinrich Zimmer. 
Yes. The best things in life can't be told because they transcend all thought. Next best things are misunderstood because they're in reference to that which we can never know. The third best are what we talk about. And then he went on to say, you know, mythology is that field of reference to 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 the to that that's that's unknown. But uh, it's still very very interesting to just to ponder that, huh? To ponder those those mysteries, I think. Yes, and, and I, the childlike I, part. I think we have uh, young neighbors, and they have two young children. Uh, girl JC, who's five, and I think her brother Caden, who's maybe uh, eight or nine. But I, we're working outside in the yard a lot now, and planting and doing different kind of stuff like that. And I'll listen to JC talk with her mother. And it just takes me back to those childlike days where everything is new. Everything is amazing to that kid. She finds a she finds a butterfly or a, or a beetle or a, whatever it is, and she's got questions, 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 and she wants to get it, and she puts it in a little house, and then she uh, asking her mother what. What do what do worms eat? And you know, it just it just yeah. goes on. It's just like this is so, you know. And I think where Jesus says we need to become childlike again. I think that's mm -hmm. it. It's going yeah. back. And then right. you read in some of the Enlightenment literature, like Nisargadatta and those guys, and I always appreciated how he would say when they'd come and try to tell them about their religion or their their background. You know, well, in my and he said, don't tell me about any of that. It's it's you. You have to go inward. You have to make the journey. Don't don't put it on that. You go back and and he said, go back to when you were a child. Go back to when you were first born. When before all the cultural inflections, right? Before mm -hmm. the I am this, I am that, I am something else. Mm -hmm. Let all of that go, and then you can reach that point of at oneness with at oneness with with being. I was really struck. I reread nourishment and i listened to you throughout this process a couple of different times and each time something something would come through a little bit stronger and i think that one of the things i loved was the way that you traverse your own life throughout nourishment and the different viewpoints that you kind of take as a as a child and as a young man and as a researcher in the middle of your life and to come back it feels in many ways, especially in the audio version, back to that space of, of awe and childlike wonder at everything. And really resonated with me because I am always trying to hold on to that thread. It, it does. It's at times a hard thread to hold on to. And I think to go back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, there's this aspect of we have these sort of boundaries, this inculcation of culture and our, the education system that kind of keeps us in bounds. And that childlike wonder is expansive. It has no boundaries. And so to return to that space it was just beautiful to follow that that kind of full circle that you make. You know, when I retired, <clears throat> research takes a lot of work, you know, and it's so detail oriented. I mean, you one experiment at a time, and it just seems like, oh, it's so ponderous. But um, 
you can you can build a story, I think, over many years of just keeping at it, keeping at it, keeping at it. By the time I reached the end, it was like, okay, that's it. I'm done. I'm done with this. We're going to go to the backwoods. And we were living there uh, in the backwoods up at 9,500 feet elevation where the transition between the aspens and conifers and all those parklands in South Park. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. It was oh, just stunning. Beautiful. It really is, huh? And you probably know that because you're, you know, you live there in Colorado and all the wildlife creatures, oh my goodness, from the birds and insects and birds and mammals, small and large mammals. And at night you'd look and it was so clear and so quiet, always so quiet. And you'd look at those stars and you just knew you were in a dimension. I was telling Sue, we're in a dimension of heaven right here. We're in a dimension that we are. You can't. And and it was it was just wonderful. But I I when I went there, I said, that's it. I'm not going to think about experiments anymore. I just want to get back to where I was when I was a child. Try to get back to that where everything is just put you put you in awe. You know, I'm I loved, and that's where I see JC. I loved, if anything moved, I loved it when I was a child. I mean, I was fascinated by it. Insects, mm-hmm. birds, uh, frogs. Oh, I have some frogs and pollywogs and fish. Oh, fish were just, and I remember we grew up a Catholic and, uh, and so we'd eat fish on Friday. That was in those days. That's that what you did. And we had this when I was really young. So I, didn't start fishing yet, but uh, relatives we had would bring some fish over and they'd be frozen in these little blocks. And I'd just look at those fish and then my mom would cut the heads off and I'd take them and I'd put them in a bucket and I'd just swim them with my hands all around. But you know, it's that, it's that just being, just being in such amazement of the life of what what's here and if if we can keep that that's a that's a wonderful thing huh that's a really it's easy to lose it to us an adult yes, it is. you get into these other stages of life you're busy 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 working all the time um jobs careers family all of those that set that second stage of life and it's easy to to lose that that awe at the mystery and wonder and of of life and then and then that child, as you're saying, that childlike imagination, or you're just you're never ending series of questions. It doesn't take mm-hmm. kids long at all to exhaust everything you thought you knew. About <laughs> yes, I, I love that. Too. I love to follow the why, 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 yeah, why. Yeah. Well, keep going. Let's keep going. That's right. And you soon realize there's the, you out of out of answers. Huh? Yeah, it's really cool. And the kids, they're just so so innocent in that too. Huh? It's not. There's no pretense. There's no, I want to try to show you how smart I am or anything like that. It's just, it's just coming. You know, I was thinking earlier when you were talking about the the most famous Einstein quote, I think that we never hear about. He said, ego equals one divided by knowledge. And that's absolutely, it. and that relates to what you said, how the more you learn, you just become realizing, wow. How amazing. And when I think back of my career in science, I think the most beautiful thing it did for me 
was just to open me up to how incredible, how how incredible it all is, how the levels of complexity and yes, you know, in it all, it just you just uh, you really do get in awe of it all. Yes, I think I think it's easy to to find to find that when you drop some of those boundaries, but I think it's just as easy to get lost. And I actually think that in some ways that complexity is what led me back to it, right? That when we when we try to pull any one variable out, you find it so inextricably connected to the whole that you learn that you can't really describe it through these single isolated measures. And I hope in that way that when you tug at that single variable and see that, that that curiosity leads you into that web of interconnectedness that I think you really began to describe in some of the studies that you did and, and begin to explore in ways that you could. Oh, I agree totally. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about a couple of things when you were saying that one was the, uh, you know, so you start out, or I did in research, and you're you're going to look at certain things, and uh, the more you, the more studies you do, the more you realize that how many different factors are influencing the one thing you're trying to study, and that was fun about the exploration, the ongoing exploration. If we'd have just done one study of how does learning influence what animals do, we may or may not have found something. We probably would have because it's so important. But we may not have realized with that all the strands and threads. And so so you say, well, animals learn early in life. And then you say, well, does mother have play a role? And you do studies and you found, oh, it's amazing. And we used to do it. I used to do a, a traveling show where we would take ewes and lambs and uh and just show people just show them how powerful the, those influences were it was that was worth a million words but so then you think oh okay there's that but then it dawns on you well geez does it start in the womb does it start in, in utero and then uh one of the things i think of a lot you know, I think that's where there's so much confusion in some of the human nutrition literature is, is you have all these isolated studies, but you don't have somebody trying to paint a picture. So, okay, is meat good or bad for you? Well, it depends what literature you want to read. And I know you're a butcher and I love butcher. <laughs> we could maybe we used to love doing that on the ranch days, but but it depends what literature you, you read. And then some that I think is very starts to step back says well it depends on what your background diet is if you have a junk food diet you're more likely to have some of these in the epidemiological studies you're more likely to get cancer and blah 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 these kind of things but you know <clears throat> that became such a huge part and we had to be hit on the head with it to realize that everything we were offering those animals was influencing what they did in every study we did it was amazing it was amazing to uh to see that, um, I I could tell you so many examples of that. Though in this in this in the weirdest ways, but it, it finally gets you the message that everything is is tied in here. We were doing studies just quickly, and you could delete this if it's not. 
But so we were doing studies on feedback, these metabolically mediated feedback, that it's altering preferences for foods. And it was showing over and over again how powerful it was. And we were looking, so we started looking at some, you know, when a ruminant eats food, the bacteria in the gut start to digest it, and all these volatile fatty acids are produced. And propionate is one of those. These are feedback signals. And so we thought, well, let's work with propionate and let's infuse that into the gut and see what, what the animals do. And so you have to do that as, or we did it as in the form of sodium propionate. And what we found was that if animals were eating salt blocks, if we had them free access to salt mm -hmm. blocks, they weren't acquiring a preference based on that feedback. Why? Because the sodium that was in their sodium propionate was more than what they wanted. You see what I mean? Yeah. We had that hit us yeah. more than once. And it's like, oh, my goodness, how subtle, how profound and how subtle and how these creatures are in tune with their bodies. You know, they literally are. And we we just weren't thinking this little bit of sodium that's there hooked to this propionate, which is the form we had to give it in. It's not going to matter. And yet, and then when we got rid of the salt blocks, oh, we get a great preference for sodium propionate. That's probably a combination of the sodium and the propionate. And anyway, we so it was an ongoing series of those kind of things. The more, more we did, the more you realize, I'm trying to put flesh on what you said, that everything really is connected. And in ways, in time and space, in time and space, in ways that you, you don't stop. It's the nuance <laughs> that mm -hmm. I think is so important that goes out of so many conversations nowadays. They become very black and white, huh? Yes, very black and white as opposed to... I was just watching a friend ask me to watch this um, this movie, and uh, so I, I probably wouldn't have done it. But but she asked, and I said, "Okay, I'll watch this." And I found it incredibly, incredibly interesting uh, watching it. The title of the movie is "The Game Changers." I don't know if you've watched that movie or not, or heard about it. I'm familiar with it. It certainly uh, has its place in the sort of dietary dogma world. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and I when I was preparing nourishment, I'd read books, China study and watch yep. videos like Forks Over Knives. And so understand where, where they're coming from. And I, I, I really hadn't um, thought to watch this one, but it was really interesting to to just sit and watch and and think about think about they were very clever in the way they did that movie you know to get get these world class athletes they're all performing at highest levels to to talk about what they were doing and then get uh, medical and nutrition experts in there um, to it was very compelling it's a very compelling story but to me it's like there's Another side to all of that, too, that would provide some balance in there if if they told if you if you did that same thing for the other side and said, well, you know what? Now, Kate, there's no one like you has ever been on this planet before, and there'll never be another one like you. Every one of us is unique in time and space. So you know what? You got to figure out what diet works for you. And that, I think, is the bottom line. You know, oh, absolutely. for some people, probably plants work really well. And for others, maybe the, the, the carnivore end. And for a lot of people, eating both really works well, right? We're, we're yes. on the so, 
But that kind of nuance doesn't get in there. And to me, it's a disservice in the same from the climate standpoint. You know, the so they got into, into climate there too. Well, okay, that's true what you're saying, but there's another side that, that to that in terms of, of all the things they mentioned about livestock and methane and so forth. There's a whole other side to that too that needs to be brought out that provides provides nuance, but you can see why people become so confused and just throw up their arms. And uh, But then I think the part that never gets said is there's only one Kate that's ever ever been in this universe oh. and ever will be. That's pretty amazing, you know? Pretty incredible. Kate's plus ever-changing environments. Plus now let's really, let's go quantum and let's throw the dice and make a little bit of chance in there at the molecular level during development. I just love it. It's like, you know, no matter what. And so you could be conceived under the very same conditions that you were conceived, but you still wouldn't be the same you because chance would, you know, quantum uncertainty at Brownian level and all that kind of stuff would make yes. you different. And I, I find that so, so amazing. You know, we have friends from the ranch days, Carl and Wilma. They met in Austria. She was born and raised in Austria during World War II. And so she's she's 89 years old now. Carl died a few years ago, sadly. It, they were wonderful, just soulmates. Uh, my wife Sue and I used to love to go visit with them. And, uh, but, but we, we, uh, it's so fun to visit with Wilma because after 89 years on this planet and, you know, all that's happening in this country now politically and stuff. And <clears throat> we talked to her about that. We talked to her about World War II. But the point I wanted to make was not to go there. But I, I, we walked in one day to visit with them there. And Carl was talking about bluebirds, mountain bluebirds, those beautiful birds that come seasonally to Colorado. And he said, and you know what? No two of them are alike. And I said, you know, that's incredible, Carl, that you said that. I've spent a lifetime studying these things and, you know, and coming to appreciate that. But how do you spout this stuff out? You know, but he knew, he knew no two are alike. It was fantastic to hear him say that. How funny, how easy it is to forget that, that as we observe, you know, goldfinches and orioles, and we have bluebirds here too, that it feels like we are observing this this single thing without forgetting that these are individuals and bio individual too. Um, you said something that I think about that I think about often, which is, you know, the right diet that's right for us is it's a confluence of all these factors, right? It's our parents and our place and our experiences that happened to us in childhood, the food we were eating in childhood, the food our mother was eating while we were in utero, all of these different things that have come together by by sorts of chance in all the unlikelihood, this, you know, unlikely probability that is Kate or that is Fred. And here we find ourselves completely bio-individual. And I think in our desire to simplify complex creative systems, as you call them, and kind of bound them in so that we can have a single answer, we leave both nuance and this idea that no two are alike. And 
I wonder if some of that is our search for certainty in a very uncertain world. I think so. I think so. And I think fear drives a lot of that too, huh? Fear of differences and mm -hmm. and uh oh, but I think that's that's right. And then but nature just keeps throwing it in your face, throwing it. look at all the movements now on the LBGTQ and all, all I mean, if you really get into this that that we're talking about what you see is it's all along a continuum you know it's all a continuum of how the biology gets expressed so you can have all these different kinds of people as as we would would see nowadays it's always in your face though right it's always right there in your face throwing it in your face throwing. and and you know um so that's that's how that's how the creator made the whole thing, right? But people, I think it it can be really an affront to different kinds of always to belief systems, huh? Rather than just accepting that mm -hmm. that you know everyone is different, everyone is unique, and not necessarily having to be in everybody's face, whatever it is, you know. That, but just appreciating how how amazing it is that uh, I used to give talks long, long time ago when I was a young professor, there was a lady from UC Davis who was studying sheep at the U.S. Sheep Experiment Station in Dubois, Idaho. Mm. And she was studying rams and trying to look at characteristics of, uh, you know, of, of rams that you would want that would be good for for uh, for breeding purposes of, of the ewes and so forth. But But she used to talk about studs and duds <laughs> and she was she was really exploring homosexuality in rams you know so there was this continuum and she used to talk about that and and she used that catchy phrase studs and duds and she would talk about but that's what she was really getting into was uh you know that continuum and so it's not just in humans you, you could probably find it if you took the time to study it enough you would find it all these, all this variation that's out there, and I think that's what's really, you know, we talk about survival of the fittest and natural selection and stuff, and that's interesting, certainly. But I think what's amazing is the way nature makes no two things alike, just keeps creating differences, 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 and then you know, each creature kind of sorts it out for themselves, and some, some make it, and some don't, and in all populations, I guess us included. Huh? Absolutely. It's it's funny. I was thinking about, I've been thinking a lot about survival of the fittest and how we couch things in competition oftentimes and how the ways in which we describe scientific findings are inseparable from the culture that that cultural milieu that we we find ourselves in right these these same guardrails that we were talking about at the beginning like we view our 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 work as scientists i'm including myself here and i'm not really but as as trying to remove all these variables and to reach this place of pure objectivity but really our viewpoint is is so ingrained in us and I think a lot about the way that that Darwin couched things in 
a sense of competition. And I believe it was, I was, I was speaking with my friend James Connolly about this, uh, Alfred Wallace, that couched it much more in an idea of collaboration and the different ways of viewing that. And as we're looking at that continuum and that idea of the fittest, that there is also there are also relationships that are built into these spaces, that it, it might not just be that. Yes. We, you know, in science, we we are taught to try to be objective, as you're saying, huh? And to write in an objective way. So you don't use the first person ever. You're always, you know, trying. But it's so true. There's it's it's there's no way to get out the the questions you ask the way you ask those questions everything is being influenced by all of these different different ways that you look at the world it's it's uh, it's pretty amazing in that sense absolutely the case i i chuckled about that a lot over the years and then you know you wonder about to well, to what degree then does your presence influence the outcome of experiments in ways that you're not even really thinking about it, whether you're working with a goat or a sheep or a human or whatever it is, you know, how does that, there, there's just layers upon layers upon layers, but that, that notion of objectivity really, if we're honest, go, goes out the window. It's, yes. It's, yes. Yeah, it's not there. Work. You have a quote, and I didn't pull it, I should have, in Nourishment that I really love, and it's, um, Tapra talks about it in the Tao of Physics. He talks about a, a gentleman who wants to rephrase it, that we're not observers, but participators. That and, and within that quantum model, right, the second you search for that electron, you have, you have fundamentally changed it. Yeah, that's fabulous kind of stuff. And that really gets you thinking about all of this. We're participators, huh? We're participators, co-creators in all of it, which is which is in its own way really wonderful to think about that, huh? To, and yes. to realize that. that. But then there was another book I, I read years ago, Peter Sange's book, The Fifth Discipline, The Art and Practice of the Learning Organization. Really, it was really good. He was He was attempting to really think... Well, he'd spent his career at MIT, and he'd worked with some of the best businesses in the U.S. Uh, and so his book was an attempt to talk about about five the five disciplines. What made these? What made the companies that lasted? What what mm. what was it that really helped them to to do that? And uh, and and he talks about these things that we're talking about, and and about. You know, if there's something going wrong in the business, look in the mirror because you're a part of it. You know, <laughs> this this idea that you're separate from it and it's others. No, forget that. You're you're a part of it. You're you're a part of whatever's going on for for good or for not good. Um, after I read that book, I really, you know, we used to teach in natural resources principles classes, principles of range management, principles of forestry, principles of wildlife, and so forth. And and uh, a lot of details about about those things. But after I read Sangi's book, it's like, you know, these five disciplines are really what it's about in terms of any principles kind of thing. And, and they weren't at all what what you would think. You know, they were. And I don't know if I'll remember them, Kate, but personal mastery, you know, the growth mm. and development of the individual searching uh, and testing mental models, always questioning, questioning your your own models um team teamwork 
I forget. The, the fifth discipline, though, was a systems worldview, that you have oh. to take on a systems worldview. And so the book was very much about trying to think about these things as systems. And uh, it, it was he did a good job with that for certain. I think that's something that you do a good job with, too, of bringing these different disciplines. And I was thinking about one one text that I come back to all the time is is Dr. Capra's systems view of life. I just love I, I just love that that textbook. I think it's incredible because I think it it tugs at getting us outside of these sort of silos and into a more interdisciplinary standpoint where we can begin to see maybe a little bit bigger of a picture unfold. And I I think that we really need that right now. And I, I actually, I pulled this from you this morning because it really, really touched me. But you said, how can we understand and manage relationships among complex, poorly understood, ever-changing ecological, social, and economic systems, considering a future not knowable and predictable? We typically think the solution lies in more sophisticated science and management, but I am no longer convinced that is true. Rather, I have come to believe we must integrate ecological, social, and economic values by creatively working with people with expertise in different fields. And I loved that because I think that, again, anytime we isolate something, we realize that we can't. And that includes one another and our disciplines and the way in which we see the world. Yeah, I so, you know, and all the boundaries that we create this. Peter Senge has a quote that I love. It, it's something to this effect. All boundaries are arbitrary. We invent them, and then ironically, we find ourselves trapped within them. I think that's that's a fabulous quote. And, you know, my experience of what you're talking about came during the last 10 years I was at Utah State University, the decade of, of 2000. I uh, In 99, I was diagnosed with cancer. And when I got back from the hospital and the surgery and everything, got back to the university, couple of friends that I'd worked closely with, and I said, you know, we've talked for years about all these studies we're doing and how relevant they are to people who manage landscapes, but we've never done anything to get it out to, out to those people. Mm. We've never told them about what we've been too busy working on it. And these were two people that came from ranch and, you know, backgrounds that we all had that experience. And we would sit around and talk, boy, this is really relates to this and that and the other that people were doing. So we said, okay, you know, there's no guarantee you're going to be around much longer. And at the university, the person who's the principal faculty member running a program, if that person's gone, that's the end of the program. You know, they don't just keep them going. So we said, look, let's see what we can do to, to try to get a grant to put all this stuff out to people. And so we, we did that. And it was just fortunate in terms of timing. There was a huge USDA program, forget the name of it, but they had, it was many million dollars. And we applied the first year, didn't get it. But we learned from that. The next year we had the top ranked proposal. And so we got about 4.5 million, which for us was like, <laughs> I mean, we, we went hand to mouth over those years, but that allowed us then to the main focus, we could continue the research, but we could do huge outreach. And so much came, 
you know, two ladies, Beth Burt and Kathy both. Kathy's the one who's doing all this, has a whole business on training animals to be weed eaters. She she worked with us for that 10 years, but they did a fabulous job of fact sheets, videos, on and on and on. And there was just so much came out of that. But here's the key thing was that they want us to put together an advisory board. And we thought, who are the most innovative people we know in this country doing stuff? And we said, we'll invite them to this first kickoff meeting and we'll take and we'll just overview for the first two and a half days what we've been doing. So people will have an idea what what we've been up to because they. And so we got 47 people from around the country and we paid their way to come. And it was it was incredible. It was just absolutely incredible to see their reaction to what we were talking about. And then we invited them. Okay, let's let's work together now. Let's work together. Mm-hmm. And so what what happened then, you had this incredible creativity because you had the researchers and, and our interests, but then you had the, the people who were working with managing land, whether it was wild or domestic animals or both or all these landscapes, and they were thinking about issues. Then this got them thinking, right? This got them yeah. thinking about, oh my gosh, well, if that's true, then what about that one? So we started for a decade, we did research that was totally about questions. They they were driving the questions. They were bringing the questions. We weren't thinking them up anymore. They were saying, well, you know, we've got this issue. Sagebrush, just use sagebrush as an example. It's a huge plant in the Western United States, right? And for most ranchers, the only good sagebrush is a dead sagebrush. Because of the way we've grazed, spring grazing and stuff, we've really favored domination by sagebrush. So back in the day, used to use mechanical ways, you know, chain that stuff out of there. Uh, huge expense to do that. Then uh, herbicides, all kinds of herbicides to poison the plant. And they said, well, what if what if we could use livestock? to rejuvenate these landscapes and wildlife too. What if we could do that? So amazing kind of program came out of that. And, you know, for all these producers we worked with, they were really talking about, we're not interested in in increasing production, productivity. Mm -hmm. What we're interested in is increasing profitability. And those two are quite different things. You can put all these inputs in that are so expensive and keep production going up, but your costs are going up with it. So you're not getting more profitable. So they were about how do we get out of fossil fuel loops? Yes. How do we cut gas? That's the main way to cut costs. And so one of the ways, too, was, well, look, we could use sagebrush as a winter forage because it's it's more palatable then because terpene concentrations that deter animals from eating it have dropped. And so you can utilize this plant as a winter forage, you know, where you used to just feed hay in the meadows, you could feed some hay there to supplement the animals to help them to utilize sagebrush because we knew the ability to detoxify and eliminate these terpenes depends on nutritional state. And if they're in a good nutritional state, they can eat more of it. We showed you could double intake. So just a whole bunch of creativity flowed. And I remember one guy, um, Crown, Crown Cattle uh, was the place in Oregon. And I had to twist his arm a little bit because he didn't, you know, 
So by the end of the program, we had 250 people coming to our advisory board meeting, you know, and they would be giving presentations on what they were doing. And I said, Matt, you need to give a talk on what you've been doing with that. It's amazing. And he was nervous to do, but, oh, he gave such an amazing talk. And it was just about, you know, if I had a dime for a penny for every, all the, each time I tried to get rid of sagebrush, I'd be wealthy. I'd be a yeah, rich man. And he said, yeah, and he said, and here I never saw it as a resource, as a forager source. And he said, now, and he talked about how he transitioned his cattle and what they'd done. And so that's long-winded, Kate, but that's, you know, that's, I think when Abe Lincoln invented the land-grant system, and Abe was the one who got that started, the land-grant colleges, yeah. I think that must have been what he had in mind and what was happening. You know, as you work together hand in hand and the scientists can contribute and the, the people on the ground can contribute. And so that decade, and I could tell you story, I could tell you stories the whole rest of the time and not touch it uh, all of the projects that we got involved with, with all these producers looking economically, socially, ecologically, it was it was amazing and it was just so rewarding because you knew that the work you were doing was was helping real life people. It wasn't just and I say this just I don't shouldn't say just, but it wasn't only going to be in journals on library shelves. No. It was it was coming alive. So in that practice. In practice. And how yes. how fantastic that that is, you know, to to be do and we were publishing like crazy still. It wasn't like, well, now now there's nothing to publish because we're working with, with these producers that aren't doing anything. It was we were still doing fantastic. And the grad students were now working on projects in the field. It was uh I'm I'm going on too much about that, but it was amazing what how how wonderful that was, that marriage. I'm struck by, in you telling this, the shift in relationship that that your decision to work in relationship with land managers in a way that you never had before using this grant money shifted this whole cascade of relationships. It changed the relationships that those land managers had with Sagebrush, for example, and then the relationship that cattle had with Sagebrush. And so this decision to to reach across to to do this in in relationship with two different two different shareholders in the system right as researchers and as as people that would implement the research if they know about it that it changes all these other relationships yes absolutely and i think that's the key word relationships i think so much that that's really for me that's what it's been about friendships and relationships mm -hmm. so meaningful to me um that's what's been so so amazing about it is just the friendships the lifelong friendships and and those deep relationships you know i have uh there's a lady who was involved in the program back in those days and her husband Sheldon and Sandy Atwood, and uh, Sandy just finished her PhD, actually, and she's not young. She's not old, but she's not young. <laughs> Raised a family, you know, she's got kids out in the world, but she's had this huge interest in Native American kinds of ways of seeing the world, mm -hmm. and uh, so she defended her dissertation uh, a couple of weeks ago, and we 
my wife and I sat in by Zoom just to to listen to her seminar about all that. And it was fabulous, you know, and it was about different ways of knowing, different ways of knowing. And, you know, since the 17th century and the Western way, we've really been caught up in reductionist science, right? Yes. In science. And, yes. and there's value to that. You can you can learn some good things, I think, anyway. But but what we need we've forgotten is that that's only one way of knowing. And these relationships and what was beautiful and seamless and it got thrown away was where she was talking about that to them, everything is relationship and everything is related to everything else, whether we would consider it. They see it all as alive, the, the rocks, the birds, the trees, the water, and they're all relatives. They're all all your your relatives. And that puts you totally at oneness with, with all that is, right? And so when she was describing that, and she was describing talking about water, trying to talk to them about the chemistry of water, H2O, and when and one of the young students said, Oh, I see. So hydrogen is a relative of oxygen. And when they come together, that's ah, fabulous, brings tears to my eyes. But you know, and when I was on the ranch uh, with Henry and I, you read about Henry in the book, you know, he was like a, like a parent. It was just, it was so, I learned so much from out there on the, those years on the ranch, but he had no formal education, but he had a lifetime of knowledge. And when that knowledge then gets passed from generation to generation to generation, there's an incredible kind of value in that and the relationships that people have experienced and developed with those. And we, I think we've really lost that as a people mm. to, to our detriment, the, that intimate relationship with the, the landscapes that ultimately nourish and sustain us. Mm -hmm. I think mo we mostly don't, don't appreciate that. We've gone so down the techie route, you know, the Silicon Valley route, if we can do we can do better. And I, I think that when I think about um, plant-based meats and cultured, cultured meats and those sort of things, um, you know, there's, gonna, there's no way to reproduce. If you have an animal out there foraging on 50, 75 different plant species, each with thousands of secondary compounds of these phytochemicals that we know promote health, we don't know all how all their interactions because there's so many of them huh? it defies reduction of science to look at that but we know that they're there and the work that stefan's doing and we're all tied in with is you know just showing the, the that they get into tissues and concentrations that nobody imagined before that can mm. be as high as in plants and stuff and so how do you get that into cultured meat you know at some point i think a person has to to see roles for all creatures on the planet. And then this what never gets discussed, and it didn't in that in that game changers. It talk as if the animals, all they do is bad and they burp methane, and that's about it. But you know, I went to Utah State 
by chance, totally but fluky kind of stuff. And I won't tell the story, but uh, I liked the story. You like the story. I like the story. I just love well, and I love the and looking back in retrospect and seeing this incredible unfolding of events that you could have never foretold by but this this single recommendation of was it Pastor Jerry? Who had a friend? Oh, you know, yeah, that was amazing. Well, you know, because I was bantering around, not knowing even what I was doing, and I, I laughed to the one of the places I applied. They said, "Well, did you take the TOEFL test? Do you know what the TOEFL test? Test of English as a foreign language." <laughs> so it's just hilarious. You have to laugh about all all that happens to you, but it was fluky how. You know, ended up there, but it was oh, it couldn't have been a better place. And I to I didn't have a clue. I didn't have a clue. And in those days, I'll say too, and that department, that department I ended up was one of the best in the world. It seriously was. It was an amazing. And I was naive because I went in there as a young grad student and. Uh, Oh, loved it. Just absolutely loved it. And the stimulation, the, 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 the environment, all these. It was so diverse. People from all different disciplines, backgrounds, from economics to plant ecology to out ecology to nutrition to um, watershed. Every discipline was in that department and all of them were young and so creative. And so you go to the Monday seminar and it was just like, oh, you'd learn so much. It was fabulous. And I thought, wow, this is the way academia is. No, that was uniquely inflected in that time and place. Wow. And it it went away. And I never saw it. I never saw anything like it before. The, well, I didn't know before that. But after that, you know, it was just yeah. it was unique kind of of thing, but it was it was really it was an amazing place, uh, an amazing place place to be. And I went there. Sometimes I forget where I was headed. <laughs> You're laughing, but but I went there because because they accepted me. But also the people that were working there had a long history over the decades of saying, "Can we use domestic animals to improve landscapes for wildlife species?" See, and I'd come through wildlife at Colorado State University, the wildlife program, mm. and really they did not like domestic animals. That, that was absolutely clear, but I was on the ranch at the same time, you know, so I was kind of in, yeah. in both worlds. And, and then when I saw this at Utah State, it's like, boy, that is fabulous. You're going to actually use domestic animals to improve landscapes for wildlife species and I thought this is the place this is the place for me even though you know I really didn't have it's <laughs> the only place that would take me so it wasn't <laughs> like I was making a bunch of choice but then you know I've worked so much with this dear friend Michel Mireille in France and we text just about every day to one another out of friendship you know and and uh <clears throat> all his work with the shepherds in France and our work is related to that work mm -hmm. that the shepherds were doing brought us together. But, um, you know, they do such marvelous, marvelous things with landscapes through the way they manage grazing. And uh, so none of that gets brought out in this black and white kind of worlds where, you know, yeah. livestock are the devil and uh, it's bad for human health. It's bad for environmental health. And, uh, 
So I, I think the black and white part, going back to the nuance we talked about, the nuance is, is really what's happening at the local level. It's, it's about nuance. But we really do uh, try to make things black and white so often. Yeah, I I think too. It's about I think it's about creativity. You you speak a lot about creative, complex systems in the book, but also about love as a force of creativity. And I think that when you have this sort of reductionist Cartesian view of things where you've isolated elements and then people end up in in these sort of camps that are pitted against one another in this in the spirit of whether it's dogma or competition or or just the discomfort of maybe both of you being a little bit right and both of you being a little bit wrong and nobody being <laughs> nobody having all the answers um but i think that there's this I think a lot of it is born out of fear. And I think that fear is something that takes creativity away from us. And so when we've become so afraid of a very uncertain future, and then, and I think an uncertain future that's sold to us around every corner, right? I mean, every headline you pick up, every, every time you scroll on your phone, like there's just all this uncertainty. And I think that it's lost creativity and it's lost love and it's lost that interconnectedness of finding these answers with one another. Oh, I, I so agree, Kate. And I think that, you know, looking at, at the research program over the years, I think that, that those were the key elements, you know, and we didn't sit and talk about how much we loved one another or anything like that. You know what I mean? But it was that, though. I mean, it was relationships and, and kind, loving relationships and shared that led to the creativity. It used to, it used to amaze me how, especially early on in the program, I remember, I remember one student, Roberto Distill from Argentina, and we were working with goats down in southern Utah, and we were saying he was doing an experiment. Or, <clears throat> where we wanted to look at whether or not experience with mother early in life would influence their ability to utilize blackbirds. But I remember in the in the when we would drive from the study site down to St. George, where we were staying, about 30-mile drive, mm -hmm. we would be talking and we would be saying things that it was just so amazing that we would say those things because in turn in light of conventional ways of thinking about about the topic it's like this is heresy one heresy after another that we're spouting yeah. but it was just it was just just um just speaking from our hearts just letting our our minds go and sangi talks a lot about this dialogue the importance of dialogue a free mm -hmm. flow of ideas where you you just suspend all your assumptions let all that go and just just speak like that and it was amazing and i I'm thinking now of Roberto's defense, his PhD defense, where you have your committee members in there. And it was, you know, the poor student gets the brunt of it because they're going to, they're on the firing line, right? But it's the professor that's behind a lot of this stuff too. But, you're, but um, there were a lot of, of, of 
some of the people on the committee were very, what I would call, quote, Newtonian in their view of that. You know, it's all about chemistry and that's all it is, uh, chemistry and physiology. And there's this touchy-feely learning and all this kind of stuff. So that was an interesting defense. Roberta did a good job. And I think uh, all that over time got people thinking about, well, animals, maybe it got them thinking, animals really aren't machines. Genes really aren't destiny. That uh, you know, that that saying that animals are involved in the world, which allows them to evolve with the world, huh? participating, mm. co-creating. Yeah. And then that that whole notion of of love and uh, and those relations, those loving, kind kind of relationships with one another. And you could see differences across the, the university if people had that with their students and their program or didn't and it was a big difference in terms of what was coming out of those programs that's mm. that's for certain you know I mean I think that I think some of what your work described for me in many ways mirrors right that, that these animals have their own sort of cultural milieu, right? And and these epigenetic shifts that are happening in utero, but also just in relationship between between mother and offspring as as she sort of navigates place with that offspring or or it's a new place in which that's going to shift how that offspring, you know, the success of that offspring because the mother doesn't have knowledge of that place. And I think that we're not so different. And, and, and I am still, you know, right where we started this conversation, like so much of looking at the way that goats might learn is also looking at the way that we might learn. And I think I, I mentioned the work of Gabor Maté in one of my emails, but it's really describing the idea that the loving relationships that we're set up with or not in childhood have great effects on us and that cultural milieu, but also at an epigenetic level. And, and you can see this described in the way that a rat mother licks her pups and, and the sort of lovingness that she expresses and how that changes them at an epigenetic level. And so Isn't that I think amazing it's, it's incredible. Yeah. They're, they're calm as adults, huh? They're yes. calm lower cortisol levels if, she, if they've been nurtured and loved. My wife likes to say she was an unlicked rat, you know? And so, but I mean, that, that influences you. And it's not to blame anyone because you realize all these connections too, right? You realize, boy, well, mom was the way she was because grandma was the way she was. It comes down these generations, yes. which is, is amazing to... Uh, but yeah, you know, we were driving by a bunch of cows that are calving now, all these little young babies, maybe 50, 75, I don't know, tons of them. But the moms, you know, cows, there's a babysitter cow or a few babysitters mm -hmm, that's, mm -hmm. and then the moms are. But you think then, <laughs> and that mom and that calf come back and, you know, just to look at them, it's like, well, how the hell would I know which calf is mine? You know, but I mean, they do. It's And, and then this whole idea of sentience sentient hmm. consciousness and sentience i think uh, you know you you look at the the relationship of the mother with the offspring what well, whatever it is goat sheep cow any of them it's um it, it's amazing to see that and then you see when you wean them how they hmm. ball and ball and ball and ball huh? that's and i think it can be sometimes how do I say you? 
if you really think about that, it could make you make you not want to not want to do kind of procedures that we do with animals, right? Where we 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 raise them and then we wean them and we sell them and ship them to the feedlot and stuff. If you really thought, and some people do, huh? I mean, that's part of where people say, I just don't want to participate in eating meat anymore because that whole system and you put them in feedlots and so forth. But if you think about that, you know, if you think about it too much, you either you either have to say, I, I'm going to change the way that I'm doing things, or you have to say, I can't think about it anymore because this is just the way it is. I remember on the ranch, uh, lambing time where we would be be lambing and pulling lambs, and you'd always end up with the with the, a few orphan lambs. And uh, I remember one time, and so you'd bottle rear them, right? And you become the mom then. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember one time we were getting ready to sell all the lambs, and uh, we had them in the corral. <sighs> And these these two three young uh, bottle-reared lambs that we had just came running right over oh, to God. us, you know. And yeah. you just think, you just think. Um, so that's where I I like this idea, like it used to be before World War II, of you know rearing animals in the environments and uh, making their raise. Cattle, sheep, and goats all end up in extended families if you don't wean them. They end okay. up in extended families. We don't and wean those, ours. And they... Yeah, and those families, you know, I mean, you you have, it's a social network that's supportive. It's it's amazing thing. I, uh, I remember after, I think it was my sophomore year in college, freshman or sophomore, I'd taken a class in genetics. And we were learning about crossbreeding and all these kinds of things, you know, and the value of that. And I didn't know anything about anything, still don't, but didn't. Think. And I remember, but I did, it must have been sophomore year. But I paid attention that Henry had one breed, Herefords, that was his breed, you know, that's it. And, and he always kept his own replacement heifers, always. He never brought in other kind of heifers and never crossbred or anything. He kept his own. And so I had uh, paid enough attention to know that. And so I remember asking him then, and we worked long hours on the ranch. It was like 10-hour days, six days a week, and I was making $250 a month or something. It was, but, but here's the point. of He would always take time to talk, to tell stories, and he had... And so I said, so Henry, why don't you do that? Why, why don't you um, do those kind of things? And he said, you know, I've brought in other animals into the ranch, rather replacement animals, try to make my, my herd better. But he said, you know how we move the animals starting in the late spring? We moved them onto BLM ground. We're moving up in elevation. The ranch was at 8,600 feet of elevation. We moved them up to BLM. Then we go on to the Forest Service, and there's all these big pastures, and we're moving them throughout the summer, mm. um, you know, every few weeks or whatever, we're moving them. And he said, just for instance, said, you know, when they're over in Droney, we know that we have to check all these different places in Droney. They're not in one big herd. They're in these little groups. They're all in these little groups. Mm -hmm. And so... We go and we check all these different places and say, and I knew that because we'd done that, you know, I, and, uh, 
And he said, you know, when you bring animals in from the outside, you don't know where you're going to find them. You don't know even if you're going to find them. And they're not going to be bred. They're not going to be bred. And he said, that's, you You broke, it's just disorder. They don't know where, you know, in behavior literature, people people used to say when, when that was done, that the animals are, quote, exploring the range. Mm-hmm. And they probably are, but I think there's more to it. It's like, where the hell am I? Yeah. I don't know, but I want to go home and I'm going to try to find yeah. home. If there's, if there's a place that's a gate that's open or something, they're, they're gone. So he told stories like that. And he said, you know, one year I had to move my cow herd. The reason why it doesn't matter for this, but he said, I had to move to South Park. He said, it was the summer from hell. It was the summer from hell. And he said, we had horrible reproductive performance. So he said, he summed it all up by saying the cows just don't know the range. And when I think of all the work we did for 40 years, every bit of it was, what does it mean to know the range? But I've reflected more on that, too, on those little groups. And if I had the chance now, I would have made note over time of all of those replacements, because I'll bet those were little family groups. Think about it. He's keeping his own replacements. They're going with mom. And so you have this transgenerational kind of little little families. Anyway, it, it was neat to... Uh, it was it, it was it was really life changing those those years on that ranch for certain and just that I've never felt closer to the natural world than in those years of every day out there working whether it was irrigating crops or working with animals or I don't know what it's like to be an ant but I used to look at their ant piles and I oh, used to, it's one know, of my favorite it, oh it's one of my favorite things to do and I have to say this right here I can't help but wonder if the reason you felt so connected because that was Fred and Fred's place, right? That was you and your place, not uprooted like those, you know, the cattle that we're talking about. You were intimately connected to that space and and knew it. It absolutely, absolutely was been raised, you know, in in that environment. Everything yeah. was you know, all of the different, yes, I think that's absolutely it. And it just felt so, so grounding. And so I I was just so grounded and centered in those days. Absolutely. And it it was, I'm sure it was, was that what you're saying, you know, and then, and then I, I had no experience of ranches, none, none whatsoever, you know, of, of being on a ranch and, uh, and so that that was such an eye-opening experience of uh, when that friend said, you know, we can earn a little extra money in this summer. Um, I'd worked at greenhouse at a greenhouse through all my high school years, and that senior year, he said, you know, we can earn eight cents a bale. We'll split it four cents a piece, hauling hay out at Henry's in the nights and on the weekend. And I said, what the heck? And I loved it. I just, it was like, wow, this you're young. You're, you have some strength back in those days. <laughs> and it was like, this is, this is a match. This is a match for this kid. I love it. And then I, Henry must have said, well, I need a summer helper. And so then from then on, I just went there. And then after I graduated from college, didn't know what to do really. So I thought, well, just go back to the ranch and kind of try to figure it out. And yeah, but I did that. And you know, I've done several um, conversations with with indigenous peoples here over the last couple of years since the pandemic. And it's so 
I can relate very much to when they introduce themselves, they talk about place, the place, the place I am bred from. And I think, I think I, I love Candace Pert's work on molecules of emotion. Mm -hmm. And I think, boy, we're, we're wed to those, wed to those places. I, at least I, I, I am. Awesome. And, uh, we're only here in Montana now because of our kids, you know, and we love it here where we are. But but soon I thought we would die up there in the backwoods, um, yeah. you know, just grow old and, and die back there because yeah. it was not for everyone. But for us, it was perfect, you know, being up there. And uh, I feel like a native well, creature. You know, it's funny. We moved my husband that this is a little bit of a detour, but I'm going to say it anyway. My husband and I moved um, up here to upstate New York. We're right on the New York Vermont border because land prices were so cheap, right? We could afford it here and out West, out West. It's always a different game. And I've struggled immensely to find a sense of being in this place. I, I, I miss the West wholeheartedly. I, I, and I, don't always know how to be a participator here in this environment. It feels foreign. I I empathize with those those transplant cows. I feel like a bit of a fish out of water looking for a big open space over every ridge. Like maybe then it will open up, you know, beyond the the sort of rolling hills of back east and the forested. It, it's much more contained than the sort of beautiful vast sprawl that I feel accustomed to coming from Colorado and that wasn't a digression at all Kate that's right that's a absolutely we are we are place we are place and it's not to say anything negative about where you are now that's a beautiful place but it's absolutely just my heart has never left Colorado it never will leave Colorado and we're in beautiful place here in Ennis huge mountains big rivers but um, but there's just that that attachment to and I think it's very functional, too, in that, you know, you learn you learn all the plants, you learn all the animals, you learn all the there. And so that's maybe that is baked a little bit into 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 us as uh, you know where you come from and all that gets expressed mm -hmm. in that environment is is important for survival, too, because you you know. You know all the, uh, you know, all the nuance of, of that place, and uh, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. It's I another think. relationship. Like it's a relationship that we have to place, and and uh, it's I, yeah. I, th I think it's incredibly special. And I, I was thinking about it. it. Brings me back to I think you the paper that you sent me the AVMHA AVMHA paper. Um, you come back to this idea of coming back to local processes that that really is, you know, where we are, where we are producing things locally and where we are coming back to the farm and coming back to the ranch and coming back to place. And I think it gives us a, a center, but I think it also gives us a way forward in a way. I think you use the words from for going from ecological to ecological, which I loved. Um, I think there's yes. a lot to be said for what can be born out of knowing a place. 
I think so, Kate. And I, that's wonderful that you're, what you just said about that. And uh, it takes you back to all the indigenous knowledges and relationships that, that our ancestors, you know, it hasn't been that long ago. We, we, we know of the indigenous peoples here in, in, in this country and other countries and so forth, but it's not been that long ago that we were all indigenous to some place. And, Absolutely. Uh, and when you break those linkages, you wonder, um, well, you can kind of see where it ends up in some sense, too. I, I think it's, it's foundational to us and our health. It changes that I am in some ways, too. I think that there is something beyond language to being in a place, beyond to just our interactions with it on an epigenetic level, on a informing our biology level, that, that it becomes a part of I am. And that sort of continuity that we have with our environments, you know, like a, I, I always relate this back. I think you, you probably heard me say this in the Andreas podcast, but you know, when a goat sits and chews its cud, I see it sort of dissolve into a different plane of existence and oneness with place. Oh, I think so. You know, and when I listened to that, I was, uh, I was thinking several things. One, I, I, you can't help but wonder if if all these creatures aren't really in an enlightened state, and that mm. the humans are yes. the ones that, that really aren't in that state. But I was oh. thinking too. I can relate. You know, when they close their eyes and you think they they really are, they've just gone into it. Just gone. Yes. <laughs> but I was thinking of this, this. A snowshoe hare when we were living in the backwoods that came on our deck this one day and it walked along the deck and it went to the edge. It sat there all day long. It didn't move. It never moved to the point where we were thinking, Jesus, that is that hare sick or something? End of the day came, it marched right off, you know? And you just thought that that hare was in a meditation all day long. But there probably really are. Yes in that feeling of at oneness. And I, I talked about that after cancer, what happened to me, mm-hmm. that that peace that came over me. That was incredible, Kate. That, that and that, it, it, the words can't touch it, but you know, when they say ineffable, that it can't be put into mm-hmm. words, that is exactly it. But just that peace and that at oneness and that, that knowing, and it's, I don't know, you, the words don't get it, but that, that just that sense that, you know, there's no beginning, no end. You you are it and you are at one. And it was amazing. That lasted a couple of years. You know, I didn't. It's like Joni Mitchell's song, <clears throat> song. You don't know what you have till it's gone. Put up a parking lot or whatever. She said. Yeah. But I didn't even realize. And it wasn't until 22 years later. And you saw that in the audio book that I'm reading Eckhart Tolle's book. And that first chapter, it's like, oh, my God, that's what happened to me. That's what he's describing mm-hmm. better than I didn't even realize there was a name for it. You know, that that's what people call enlightenment when you are and that and that that's what what the Buddhists and all these people strive so much is to get into that, to to let all of the I am's go and let all the ego go. And just as Tal says, 
to surrender, to surrender, to just let all of that go. And I think that that's what happened there in that hospital was, you know, you're cut open and you're there and it's just so surreal. And I think it's it was like a huge surrender. And then all of a sudden, boy, there you are. And it was like, oh, my goodness. I I formed such a preference for that hospital. Who forms a preference for hospitals? <laughs> because well, it's like sense. what happened to me in there was unbelievable, you know. And then it lasted a few years. And uh, so more and more, I think that's what where, you know, really. And his books, Tal's books, and, and all the ones that others have written, you know, it's about how waking up, uh, all of us try to wake up and and to get into that state, and then fear goes away, it's just, it's it's absolutely, yeah, there is no, no fear, because you just, the peace, the peace of that, and the, the, the knowing, that's not the good word, but that, that you there's no beginning no end and you you're eternal you know whatever it is that's you it's eternal it, it was amazing yeah not to mm. not to uh but to to go back into that you know to let things go i think really wonder wonderful thing and it's not like you're not functioning in the world it's not like mm. you're spaced out and you're somewhere yeah. It's just that whatever you're doing, nothing is worrying you. Nothing is. It's like in the Tao Te Ching, where the not doing, you know, not doing, and it all gets done. It all just is going to happen in its own way. It was. Uh, so I was still, you know, I I went back to the university, and and uh, I was I was mortally wounded from that surgery. You know, when they do you for colon cancer, they gut you basically, and so forth. But. But it was just that that piece that that was amazing. It was really so. You wish that all of us could experience that, and what would a world look like if we oh. if we if we all could get could get there? That would be it would be amazing. All the the peace, the love, the and the lack of fear. The lack of the fear goes away, you know, because there just there is no. I love his. I love Tal's words, the the way he he talks about about that, and and I didn't have a clue, you know. But I never, and I sometimes think, well, why isn't that in in uh, William James' book, the the variety of religious experience, written in 1902? You know, he reviews all these different worlds, and it. He comes to the point where that's really the point of it all is to become enlightened. But I was never told, and I'm not saying anything against my upbringing. I really was conceived, born and reared hardcore Catholic. But even as a child, going back to our early part of the conversation, I used to wonder because see, in the Catholic Church, only Catholics are going to heaven, man. You rest if you're not a Catholic, you're you're yeah. you're done for, you know. And I remember as a young child in those same days asking my mother once, how come only the Catholics are going to heaven, you know? <laughs> and she, how come that's the only church? And she told me some, her rationale for that. I didn't believe her. I didn't, <laughs> you know, but I, I just, how does that happen though? That when you're little, little tiny, those kind of things are in your head, you know. Maybe that's how it happens. Is because you're little tiny and you're thinking yeah. this doesn't make sense. I remember a cartoon from when I was in Utah. 
It's hilarious, little cartoon characters. If I can find it, I'll shoot it to you. It's very short. So picture all these cartoon characters. There's a big stage there. There's a massive audience, and they're all wailing, you know, and crying out. And up on the stage are the are the the big shots or whatever it is. <clears throat> so which religion was the right religion? There's these flames in the background. <laughs> which was the right one? And this this one steps to the microphone. It was the Mormons. <laughs> it's hilarious. It's hilarious. Oh, God, it just makes the point. Huh? But, yeah. but, you know, it's pretty easy to think, well, everyone could think that theirs is the only way, huh? the Presbyterians, the Methodists, the, and then get into other, the, the Muslims, the, the Buddhists, the Hindus, and on and on and on. It's like, that's all just local inflection, huh? inflected in time and space, yes. the time and space where you're born, and you're going to, it would all change. So it's, it's not anything permanent, right? So when William James is talking about, you know, that should, that really should be the end point of it all. Then I'm thinking, boy, I never heard a word about that when I was growing up, no. you know, about be, being enlightened and, and what that what that means and the peace and stuff. And uh, but certainly the Buddhist, uh, that's a big, a main thing, right? Just yes. to try to nirvana, to re, where you transcend fears, desires, and social duty. Mm-hmm. Transcend fears, desires, mm-hmm. all that drops off, and you're you're at at one, huh? Yes, and and the oneness and suchness of hinduism and i think i think that a lot of those eastern religions are describing that feeling of of continuity of lack of fear of eternalness and i think too i am always struck going back to dr capra but going back to the way in which schrodinger and heisenberg and these sort of fathers of of quantum physics describe that sense of oneness that there is a felt sense of looking for that in these spaces in trying to describe that i i come back to this idea um heisenberg and i'm gonna i'm gonna butcher this quote a little bit but he said something along the lines of the if science is a glass right the first couple sips of the life sciences will make you an atheist but by the time you get to the bottom you'll find some sense of god and a sense of that oneness Absolutely, absolutely. And it's interesting to see how um, at least some of those folks that that I read about in physics, how how they really moved, embraced Eastern kind of uh, ways of thinking about that. And you read what they write, what is life? What is life? And then he's talking about that one long kind of quote and paraphrase yeah, you, you have it you have it at the end of nourishment i might have it in my notes yeah it's fabulous though that's what he's grappling with huh is yes. that, that, that there is no this you know what makes me me and you you and not to, and then you know that it's really just the separateness is an illusion it's an illusion of space yes so those you know those guys and, were, were deep thinkers about all but it took it all took them in that direction huh and i yeah. think if you follow follow any of that and in the natural world too and just follow that and and that it t- it takes you there it takes you back uh, it takes you right to it it takes you takes you there and I, I was just so struck when Sandy was talking giving her seminar about the the uh 
the indigenous peoples and the Blackfoot peoples that she was working with and how it's all, all relationship. They're related. It's all alive. All of it is living and conscious and mm. we're, um, we're they're all relatives. We're all relatives. I, I totally can embrace that. And the plant world, you know, sometimes I think <clears throat> one of the reasons that people don't don't want to eat meat, and I understand that, is you know, you're taking the life of this this being. But it's fabulous where the, the plant ecologists and physiologists and stuff have gone with their understanding of these plants are definite. To think anything isn't conscious is so strange to me now. You know, it, it, cells are, everything is conscious. Everything. I, anyway, I, I totally, and then that these plants are conscious and probably sentient as well. I love reading about those kinds of things. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned that article in uh, AHVMA, the Veterinary Journal. Uh, I uh, I think of that right now on what you, you said. I I reviewed a paper last fall. And it was on climate and that veterinarians can help people to understand some of this through through their practice and so forth. And I, I reviewed and I was thinking some of the some other thoughts and related and, and wrote those down as part of the review, but said, you know, the paper's fine. You don't have to incorporate that. But that's when they came back and said, well, why don't you write a perspective paper on that? Mm. And so I said, OK, I'll write a perspective paper. So I wrote that. And there were three sections, I think, what you probably what I sent you. Well, what's happened is that they said, you know, really, we'd like you to make three papers out of this paper, develop each of these sections of the paper. And so that's that's what what I ended up doing. It was far more than I thought, but it's been fun to it's been fun to just. And I think you wrote this in one of your notes, Kate, that. Oh, it may have been. but in some correspondence, someone is saying it really helps them to write things down. It helps them to organize things in their mind, to just mm-hmm. to just sit and write and kind of for me, I found that very much is is a way that it is of just and so it's been fun to work on those three papers and to really develop those those ideas in uh in ways that they weren't in that, you know, and I was worried that and making it into three parts, then you kind of lose a coherence that's in the one paper. But they said, well, we'll just put them all together. They're all going to be available online and uh, it'll just be put as one one thing. So anyway, that's digressing and you can cut that out if you want. But it's been fun. And many, some of the things that we're talking about are really have gotten fleshed out in those papers. That's a little yes. bit. I guess I'm mentioning that. Is no, it's true. It's true because I think that you really define it. And I actually pulled something. um, I'm going to pull this because I think that it really pulls in. Oh, there's a couple of things, but you really pull things together. I think you synthesize. First of all, I think you're, you're such an incredible synthesizer, right? You pull from all these different disciplines and all these different ideas and create so much synthesis in the work that you do, which I love as a, I, I think of myself as a generalist, right? I, I too suffer from the, but I just want to do everything. I want to know everything. The beauty of uh, getting to read books. You too, <laughs> we're, we're kindred spirits that way, right? So I can say, I love, I love that about you. And it's kind of pointing back, but yeah, there's something in us that we love to try to, to, to pull things together and try to make a, Make a sense out of it for me, you know, try to yeah. make it 
Yeah, and you're pulling together the the animal piece of this, the human animal piece of this, because I never like to to separate the human from the animal, but the the animal piece and the human piece, but also this cultural piece of what is happening right now and what we're facing. And you bring it back together. And I love the title of it, the the last paper, Love as Medicine for an Ailing Planet. And it very much is this idea of leaving our silos and our tribalism and coming back to a space of forming relationships and that giving us a deep sense of hope. Yeah, well said. That, that's, that was the, the whole idea of that. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, and that really that really struck me because I think hmm, here it is. Historically, our tribal nature served us well, but the costs of tribalism are now far too great for one people inhabiting one tiny orb. If we hope to survive, we must mend the divides that isolate us from one another and the communities we inhabit. While not doing so could be our undoing, doing so could transform our collective consciousness into the one that respects, nourishes, and embraces our interdependence with life on Earth. And it is this idea of, of so much of what we've talked about and coming back to being in a place with others, maybe that we disagree with in dialogue, I, which is something that you pull a little bit in from nourishment, that some of our greatest teachers are those that we feel the most resistance with and to find that space in dialogue and to embrace that, to learn from that. And to embrace too, I think what we've been talking here, the consciousness of, of all things that because I too feel that there is consciousness at a cellular level, that that is baked into the system in the most beautiful way. Absolutely the case, absolutely the case, you know, and uh, <clears throat> trying to, to put your mind in the, in the center, huh? In the center, <clears throat> beyond the pairs of opposites, I think is, mm. That's a wonderful challenge. And I put that, it was amazing to see the reviews when I was teaching those classes, mm -hmm. uh, that undergraduate class. And I put that one from Christy Mack in there mm -hmm. because it's so captured. It was just, and she was so in the spirit, huh? just listening to other, si to other sides. I don't even know what's, what's right and what's yeah. not right anymore. Yeah. Huh? And yeah. it was what was so neat was from the first day, I'm thinking now of, of one of the times when, uh, you know, be 50, 60 people in there. And there was an older lady, a secretary, who wanted to take the class. I don't know why she did, actually. But, you know, back in those earlier days, it's just like nowadays, all the controversies. It never ends, does it? It never, it never ends. Uh, and it probably never will end yeah. even now. But, you know, so you'd have students from rain science, from animal science, from conservation biology, from watershed, from fisheries, from wildlife, and they didn't like each other. I'm telling you, and back in those like cattle free by 93 days, mm -hmm. um, they, 
it was just so controversial. Get all livestock off the landscapes. It's, it's just a modern version of that now, but they would come to class ready to fight. I mean, they were they were angry with one another. And so we would go around the class on the first day and have everyone tell about themselves, a little bit about themselves. And and the anger, you could just feel it. And I remember after that first class, I had become comfortable with all that at that point because I knew, boy, this is the, this yeah. is just, nobody sleeps in these class because they'll get a knife in their back or something. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> and so, but I, she said, how, how, how can you, how can you deal with this? I said, oh, don't worry. I forget her name. She's a nice lady. I said, don't worry. You're going to see how, but my, what I saw from the very first as my role, as this evolved, not when I was, was to, to create a context, a safe space, a safe space where, look, we're going to talk from the heart and we're going to listen yes. to one another. And nobody, nobody, uh, as it didn't take long, and uh, but you had to model that. That's what I realized from the first. You have to, what I say to them, what I, how, how I, expose myself i, I realize you, you have to vulnerability is what you call it in the book yes you have to you have to get comfortable with being vulnerable i'm letting all this ego stuff go i guess but um but it was it was just amazing and i remember this one year this student and i talked about it in there to wally i talked about wally I've, it was amazing you it's know, an I mean, incredible it's, story it's amazing. It, it, Wally was hating. He did not want to take that class. Yes. And he'd been down hiking in Grand Canyon, Escalante, which is beautiful country. And so he came a week late to class. He did, he was down there in Grand Canyon, Escalante, didn't want to take the class, did not want to take the class. Yep. And so he came and I said, well, Wally, introduce yourself to the group. <laughs> And he was he was he was not happy. And he said, "I've been down in cow shit canyon, <laughs> you know, because he didn't like the cows." Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so, you know, Wally was a presence. But I don't know if it was that session, that that class that day. But it wasn't long after that. An animal science student was making the point, and. Uh, you know, well, you have to have meat to be healthy. You have to eat meat to be healthy. Did I put this in the thing? So keep going. Just keep going. Yeah, it's so good. To be, to be healthy. And I'm telling you, I'm not lying. Wally stood up there in front of the class. He ripped his shirt off and he said, the hell you do. He was like, oh. And the teaching assistant, Cody, who I talked to just the other day, I'm going to help him with a short course in Texas. But he he said, I looked at you and you never skipped a beat. You just kept right on going. But I think of it now and I think I don't know if I could even I don't know if I could do that anymore. But I was really comfortable in those days, you know, because it was just part of but it was and then Wally. Yeah, know? I was like, finish up where Wally ends up. Yeah, it, it's amazing. So Wally has to take the class and he, you know, he gets with the or with about dialogue. And uh, and by the end of the class, he, he's just so thankful. You know, he was so thankful. It's so nice what he was saying. But then he ends up running a ranch. It's <laughs> isn't that the way? Isn't that the way life life goes? My and wife asked me, "Did you ever? Did you ever 
plan what you were going to do or ever. She has a better way to say it. And I said, no, I never, never had any expectations. You know, she, yeah, do you have expectations? It just kind of went. But <clears throat> what was important, I think, was Joseph Campbell likes to say, follow your bliss. Find what's in you that you love and follow that and you cannot go wrong. But, and trust that. Trust that. And that was that I had that feeling of incredible peace, incredible peace. You know, you don't have to do anything. That may sound funny, but, you know, it's that, it's that idea in the doubt of not doing. And it's just all however that works. And so you can, if you want, you can worry and fret and stew and try to manipulate everything. But, yeah. but if you can just find what's in you that you love and then just follow that it'll lead you to to bliss as joseph campbell says you know satchitananda that infinite consciousness uh, mm. being and bliss and what that ends up is that peace that deep peace as i've read what these eastern folks write about those things that's where you are is that incredible peace so it's a wonderful thing do you feel like you have followed that? Like, do you feel when you look back, and I know you talk about this at the end of Nourishment, that looking back, it feels, you know, you couldn't have written it if you tried. And I know that feeling might be a little bit behind you, but I, I know the feeling of looking back at my life and having a sense of, oh, I couldn't have planned this if I had if I had tried. But following that curiosity. And I can't help but think of Wally too, right? This this relationship that you had with Wally that that shifted his life path completely in a way that he couldn't have planned if he tried. And Isn't that the beauty of it too, Kate, as we've been talking? The mystery and the wonder and being totally comfortable with uncertainty. And just that's where that peace when that overcomes you, you don't even worry because you just know it's all going to be all right. That's what I felt so much. It's it'll it's all going to be over, you know. And so it's just kind of enjoy. There's no other Kate on the planet, mm -hmm. and just what is Kate, and just enjoy being Kate, huh? That manifestation or whatever it is. I think of my father. There's I have a picture here that I I just glanced at. It was taken in 1935. It's of a football team. And he was a tiny little guy and he was on the football team. And they, they've all, they're all standing there in what they called uniforms in those days that don't even look like football uniforms now. And there's a Coca-Cola truck. Coke was still was going even there. They've got their Coke bottles. And uh, it was a picture. They were state champions for several years in there. It was an amazing team. And my father's father committed suicide when my father was 10 years old. And uh, one of those coaches, I think, became the father that he didn't have then. You know, he yeah. really he really played a, an important an important role. And I remember I used to think, boy, that was so sad for my father and my my uh, aunt and my grandmother, of course, that that happened, yeah. that that he committed to hung himself in the tailor shop. And so I, I used to think, you know, but then when I started reading and doing all this research and reading about human stuff, I thought, because I thought, well, that that affected them. But then you realize it affected me, too, because, you know, there's all the, those transgenerational linkages. Yes. So 
So I think about that, but the story I want to tell related to that. So my father loved football. And for some reason, I got it in my head that he loved baseball. He loved he loved those kind of sports, you know. For me, there were only three seasons, hunting, fishing, skiing. That was, <laughs> I survived the end of one only because I wasn't into those. But I had it in my head that that he wanted me. He thought I should do that. I don't know how it got in there. But I remember, so my freshman year in high school, I played football. And, uh, you know, I I could do okay at it, but it just, and sophomore year, I, I went out because I, you know, I thought again, but um, I decided I can't do this. I can't do this. And so I thought, I've got to tell dad. I've got to tell dad. And I was petrified, scared, you know, to do that. I was so nervous. And he was quite involved in in the community, and you know he would often have meetings that he would go. And so I remember he had been to to a church meeting or something or a credit union meeting, and he came back. It was probably about ten o'clock. It was kind of dark in the house, little light, and he came in, and I mustered the courage to tell him that I, you know, I just didn't want to play football, and he set me free on that night. He absolutely set me free. Mm brings tears to my eyes. What a you know? gift. Because, yes. He said, well, you know, your mother and I, he said, I loved football. But he said, your mother and I have always said that we need to just encourage you kids on whatever you like to do, you know? And it was like, it was, it was, he lifted such a burden that I had imposed on myself that I didn't even realize. But that was a gift. That was an incredible gift. It was be what be what you are. My mother, your mother and I have always. And uh, yeah, that that was that was amazing. And I, I see so many people where that's including my wife. That's where she says I was an unlicked rat. She had good parents. Absolutely. But they really had ideas of this is what you need to be. You know, this and soon fought it and fought it and fought it because it's and I give her credit you know I give her a lot of credit for that I love her like crazy because said no and she's still a fighter like crazy (laughs) and I tell her I'm the boss of you and don't you forget (laughs) no it's so easy but but see that that's where she says she was an unlicked rat because she wasn't that notion of you yeah. You know, empower people to be what to be what they are, however that is, is so so important. I think so important to to free that is, and I think we we receive it not just at home, but I think we often receive it at school too. An idea of who we should be or an idea of who we are. I know that I had an immense feeling of that at school, that that there was this idea of what I was or who I was or who I should be and these sort of guardrails. And I was very much like your wife in that regard. Yeah, like, as soon as I they find me, get them off me. Um, yeah, absolutely. And that was so to the point where, you know, she was very, very smart and you are too obviously and good in school. You know, I mean, she, it was no trouble for her to ace that. And all of her teachers thought, you know, and her parents, you know, you're going to go to college, you need to do this. She never went to college. And it was because of that. She, she just, yeah. now I'm not going to do what you, but there's <laughs> many, many, many ways. Your wife and I would get along. I dropped out yeah. of high school and went to college and dropped out of college. And uh, yeah. 
Yeah, you would because it, it's a similar your 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 kindred spirits that way, and uh, and so that you know that that going back to what we said that no two are alike, and being yeah. and so Sue and I tried to say that too. You know that we need to just encourage our kids to be to be who they are and to do what they do what what works for them. And part of growing up, I think, is trying to figure all that out, right? I. I it's been so long ago for me that I, but there's so much uncertainty, huh? Well, what are you going to be when you grow up? I don't know what I'm going to be when I grow up. I, I went to school at Colorado State University, not because I thought it would be a career, but I thought, well, I love wildlife. I love all these creatures, so I should just go there and do it. So I went in there. Then the four years were up, and it's like, well, I I know I'm not going to be a wildlife biologist per se, but I don't know what I'm going to do, you know. So there's that uncertainty, huh? And then yeah. it, trying to help kids maybe be comfortable with that too oh. as part of the growing up process, rather than put the yes the pressure on them that well, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You know, what are you going to be? Well, I, I don't know yet, you know. Yeah, that's a really interesting thought. How do we nurture the inevitability of the uncertainty of being in our children. Because yeah. I think that there is, I I often think about, I, I don't have children of my own, but I also often think about the way that we'll look at kids and say, oh, you, you know, you're just, you're a little artist, you're a little engineer and not wanting to put those bounds, right? And and on on anything because, because there is so much uncertainty and because so much shifts and changes with every interaction, just like that interaction with you changed Wally's trajectory um, in a way that he could not have anticipated. And you said something about teaching. You said, I worked for many years to learn how to teach, but I never really got there until the end of my career. With time, I came to realize I had to transform. I had to transcend my own imaginary fears and boundaries. I had to learn to become open and vulnerable in front of a group, to speak from my heart without preconceived notions. And I just wonder, like, is that because I think that this is so important. Is that what we do to give to our children, to give to our students, to give to the people in our lives this chance of being able to hold uncertainty? Right. Set them free, huh? Yes. In that sense, like my father did. Set yes. them free. Set them free. And I love at the beginning of seminars or talks or anything to say, it's just about a conversation. I don't take it seriously. Just, you know, kind of be in the moment and and absolutely what 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 you were saying and what when i saw what happened in those classes you know when i started out as a researcher i had to i had to teach a couple of classes an undergrad class and a grad class and i did what i how i'd learned to do you know this is how you teach you get up you lecture and blah 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 you do that stuff but what i really cared about was research that's all i wanted to do i was just obsessed it, I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. But as my career went on, especially those last 10 years or so, you know, it started for me after depression, after the five years of depression mm -hmm. in the late 80s, early 90s, that really was a transformative time. And mm -hmm. I started working to change how I taught throughout that, that decade of the 90s and then the 2000s. And it 
took some time to get there, but as you, you're pointing out, you know, all, all that all that happened with, with time. But it was just so amazing to see those to see after after that I felt like I could never never get up and lecture again and just lecture because it'd be so boring so boring yeah. you know even if you make it really fun and interesting it's still it's like you're not tapping in to this incredible creativity and knowledge and you you see them as you know these quote young students and what can they know well it's amazing what they know when you allow them to simply start talking from their hearts it's like wow this is incredible. And I remember students, I think this one gal who sat up there in the front on one of, one of the years, and they'd all come in. You know, we didn't just go in there and shoot the shit. It wasn't just a bullshit session. It was rigorous. I mean, they had to come prepared. And uh, and I would call on them, okay, Kate, your turn today to for this part to lead the to lead the conversation, you know. And so you have to know the material and and you were getting points for, for for doing that, you know. But I, I, so they'd come in, man, with with notes and stuff, and just just kind of. But this one gal said, "Do you know how mind twisting it is to come into this class after being in other classes? Do you know how mind twisting it is to to try to do that?" And we laughed and chuckled, and because it was all the other format, and I was told by one of my colleagues, a friend, we were visiting one day, came in my office and he said, do you know, it upsets some of the faculty members the way you teach, do you know that? Good. Good. And I said, no, I did. I And I was honest. I said, no, I didn't. And he said, well, you know, the point is that at the undergrad level, they need to be taught what uh, they need to be told. What's, but, you know, a class on, on, uh, natural resources and how do we work with those and we were touching on all these topics that are hot topics today you know yeah across the board it was it was all those kind of things but uh yeah i didn't didn't realize and at that point i've never been one that likes to offend people or try to deliberately do that but you know we reach a certain point too where you just you kind of do do what you do because of all the experience you had as you went along, huh? And, exactly. And then and, and I, I lost a couple of classes along the way too when I was trying to make that transition. There, sure. <laughs> what the hell is this? You know, yeah. show a Joseph Campbell mo- video with Bill Moyers, <laughs> and part that's part where too I had to get really comfortable because. You know what? What was I trying to do? What someone asked, you know, what What are you trying to do? What are you trying to do? And I was searching my, you know, but that was the beauty. It wasn't yeah. well. Let's just stay comfortable, and we'll all do hunky dory the way we've always done. I remember the first time I'm rambling, but I remember the first time that in this transition I said I'm not giving in class tests anymore. I don't want to play this game. I lecture, you take notes, you tell me what I told you. It's a game. I don't want to play it anymore. So we came to class, and they're all in there. You know how before a test, everybody's just yes. you know, got the books <laughs> and the notes, and the, and the level of tension is so high and stuff. And I just looked and was chuckling. And I said, okay, relax. We're not doing this anymore. We're not going to do this anymore. Here's a take-home test. Fill it out. 
And those tests were to tell me what it means to you personally, tell me what it means to you professionally. And if you think it's a load of crap, say it. Yeah. Say it. If it, I mean, don't don't say it to be mean or anything. But if you're not buying it, that's you, and that's where you are. So just yes. be honest. You know, it it was neat. It was about some. It was about in my mind some real honesty. You know, let let's let's not play these stupid games that's so easy to get caught up in. It goes yes. back to what you were saying: the education system and how do we do things and so forth. And you know, it's it's the easiest thing is to just kind of get caught up in routines and not even not think about, well, what yes. the hell am I actually doing here? And is it accomplishing something for, you know, like in that class, it's like these issues are huge issues and we're going to be confronting them like mad. And nobody has the answers, by the way. So we're going to have to figure out how do we work together to do that. So let's do that in this class. Let's just practice here kind of what it what it was, you know, of, of all these different views, seemingly opposing viewpoints, that how can we work together? You know, it was, I don't know if it mattered any to to anybody, but it was at least an attempt, you know, at least an attempt. I can't help but wonder, you know, you titled that chapter Grappling with Uncertainty, and we've talked about uncertainty, but I can't help but wonder if you helped people embrace uncertainty instead that instead of having having this little spar this little grapple that there there is a coming to to embrace that um and i i also can't help but wonder you know you said something like we kind of get stuck in our routine and we've talked so much about how we learn and this sort of transmission of intergenerational knowledge with, through animals and and how they share that with their offspring, it it goes both directions. Like we can get stuck in ways of thinking or being that aren't aren't serving us, right? That aren't connecting us to place, that aren't aren't having a, a positive fact positive effect in the sort of social milieu that we're in. Um or we can go that other direction and it takes a lot to break away from those processes to be to be you know your wife who well, you can't put that on me and to kind of push that off right like it takes a lot or to to be a professor in that space and to grapple with how to do it differently oh absolutely the case it, it does take a lot of energy and that's where i think too just following your bliss, as Joseph Campbell would have said. Yeah. Not, not finding what's in you and trusting that, trusting that. Yeah. You know, that that's what you need to need to be. Anita Morjani talks about that so nicely in her book, Dying to Be Me, too. And mm. I talk about that in mm. in in nourishment and in the audiobook adaptation. I think she really she really got that message in the end, huh? Had to die to do it, had to die to do it and then come back. But boy, she she really got the message. And and I don't know her, but at least in the book, she sure expressed that, huh? She expressed that that uh, yeah. that sense of of being totally comfortable with with uncertainty and being who you are, just being being who you are, and that that's that's all you need to do and the rest will take care of itself and it, as crazy as it sounds it's true and I, I think back to what you said 
how you start out and who would imagine where you'd end up, all the different twists and turns. And isn't that, in retrospect, you look back, yeah, that show or that uh, Schrodinger, but Schopenhauer, yeah, an apparent intention in the fate of the individual. It's so true. Uh, and that's about relationships, but all those twists and turns and you look back and you think, wow, and how if you'd have planned it yourself, probably be pretty damn boring, actually. But when all this stuff goes out, it's like then it makes you think, well, you know, just relax and just relax and know that's where that enlightenment sense is that you you just know everything's going to be all right. Just trust, just trust in uh, in the in that at oneness that everything is going to be and then you just go for the ride huh well this is the experience of being kate this is the experience of being fred and like i told you in one of those notes i often think i just would love if i could be even for five minutes other 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 another person another creatures and stuff plants yes even even people we think we know the best we probably really really don't know what it would be like to to you to be your husband me to be to be sue and so forth but wouldn't that that would broaden you out so much so i think the more you could try to have empathy for other people the better but still i i would love that i would love to be a a flower a tree whatever it it would be amazing if we could put it into words, if we could even put it into words, probably we couldn't, but it would, probably it would be, couldn't. we would be able to say it was amazing and it wasn't at all what it was think, you know? I, I think know. I was really struck by that because I've spent my whole life and I'll, I'll, you know, I'll look at my husband when we're driving and I'll be like, what do you think it would be like to be a deer and to have deer feet? What do you think deer feet would feel like, like to have hooves and what they would feel like <laughs> on the land and <laughs> all these different components of that? And I think you called it phenomenal consciousness. The idea of of putting yourself in those spaces. And I think that too, you know, as the sort of all the vines get going, as the kudzu gets going and the maple trees have their tender leaves out, right? They haven't developed that sort of thickness. They're still really tender and soft. Like, what is it to be a, a tender, soft leaf? And yeah, oh, feel the sun for the absolutely. first time. No, absolutely, huh? Yeah, absolutely. That's it's got to be amazing, and it, and it's fun. You know, you you and your husband are involved in working with plants and animals, and Sue and I are too. And we've got all all these plants growing like mad now in in our greenhouse and in in deep beds and stuff around here. And it's just it's it's beautiful. And all the native plants that are growing on the place here uh, starting to flower and. Yeah, the life, huh? just all the all the beautiful, beautiful manifestations. And it's kind of neat because people neighbors will walk along and say, Oh, your garden looks so so beautiful. All those pretty plants. Where did you get them? We said, Well, that's just where nature grows here, you know. <laughs> don't put don't we don't say it like this, but you know, just just leave it. And that's those are native plants. That's what grows in this place. And aren't they are beautiful, huh? They're amazing. And uh, that appreciation, we get trained to think the only thing beautiful is a is a lawn of grass 
some yeah. kind of Kentucky bluegrass or something, and not a dandelion in it. So you get out the 2,4-D to, to spray it all, rather than um, thinking about well, what was native here and locally adapted. So you don't have yes. to irrigate it. You don't have to put herbicides and pesticides and stuff to keep it. You just watch it from year to year and watch it do do whatever it does. That's uh, that's an amazing thing. All the the plant world and the beauty of the beauty of that world. I I got so hooked on that in college after I took that class in plant taxonomy. I talk about that in the book, but I, I was just I just couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe couldn't believe that that my whole life I'd never seen it too. Actually, <laughs> you know, it's like oh, all this beauty that's right here. Yeah, and I never never seen a never really seen a plant in that sense. I think that too. I think beauty is a lover to connect us back into place, right? We take in this beauty and it elicits either awe or curiosity uh, or connection. Oh, oh, I am here in this place. I think about that. We were just finishing up ramp season here. And I am always just in awe of the ramps and these trillium flowers that will come up near them. And it pulls you into that place, right? This place that feels so foreign to me where I feel like a fish out of water. That is a connection point. That yeah. is an anchor. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hel helps to link you back to place in that sense. Huh? Mm -hmm. And then to have that added feedback loop of taste in the case of the ramps. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I don't know. I want to read this. I want to read this quote from you because I think that th it's important to to pull this in. You say as as we kind of come to a close. I know we've been going for over two hours. My third trial taught me that all things, including this thing I call myself, are illusory. Our attempts to cling to them bring only suffering and discontent. Everything that's transitory is but an illusion, and everything in the earthly realm is transitory. When I look back now, my seven decades on earth seem like a dream, the dream of life from which I'm wakening. I just love that, and I I, I want to bring in that space of transitoriness, that, that everything is transitory, right? These, these places where our worries and our anxieties come up as I sit this morning and worry about this, you know, how will this go and how will I make this interview great or any of these things, right? That it's transitory. And if you can come back to that space of present moment awareness and just be with what is and this constant transformation that we're undergoing with all of the influences of the people and plants and animals that touch our lives and and become little pieces of us and then we'll go back and and be those things and i you put this beautifully in the book when you go back and you're coyote and raven and pronghorn and absolutely and yeah, flower that's, that's i tell sue all the time i i hope that i end up dying somewhere out out in the wilds and that that the creatures eat me before maybe too toxic they make us oh this is toxic leave it alone <laughs> but but you know because 
what's worse than being embalmed and put into a casket and stuff? I mean, it's the oh. tradition that we've inherited, but it's like a, uh, this separation, huh? We're separate. Even in death. Separate, even in death. Yeah. Even yeah. in death. It's mystery to me. We, uh, My husband and I have talked about this. I was like, just say I got lost hiking, right? Like, yes. just say I got lost hiking and just put my body out there and let the coyotes eat it. Yes, absolutely. Of that, 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 that at oneness huh? uh, with all of that, that uh, we're all related and relatives. And, uh, you know, we've used them as source of nourishment. Now let, let them use us as a source of nourishment. I, I am yes. totally comfortable with that, that I, I would really prefer that. And some are going to green burials and so forth huh? with that, that mm -hmm. kind of notion in mind. How do we return to the earth so that, mm -hmm. that we become food for for food for others and really i think that's what we've been talking about too is in relationships with how do we become nourishment for one another huh nourishment yes. for one another in everything that we do and then that point that you're making and Eckhart Tolle makes that so much in power of now of just be now just be in now and forget the past and like he talks in that first chapter, he says, I'm going to tell you what happened to me, but I don't like to focus on the past. I like to be right in the present. No, nowhere else. And that keeps you, keeps you, um, keeps you really in that, in that, in that space of that oneness and being and becoming and uh, forget the past, it's history. Most of it's mystery too. When you get down to it, oh, as we're talking, <laughs> mystery yeah. and mystery, and the future, the future is the same. It's mystery, huh? So just be in the now, be totally in that, and it'll all take care of itself. And follow and that's what happened to him and to me when you have that. When you have that, overcome with that feeling of peace, you just, you just know that. Then you just, it becomes very, very real. You may. You may consciously ha appreciate that, but when that ha actually happens to you, there's a there's this deep sense that you just it's amazing, you know, it's amazing, it really is. Mm. Yeah, I I I don't know that I can imagine, but I hope to imagine one day. Yes, well, you may going. end up, the, you know, I mean, it's a journey for each of us, huh? and uh, yes. That's that's what all the seekers that went to people like Nisargadatta and others, uh, you know, they trying to get there. And he and he helped he's helped a lot of people to get there, you know, to just to get into that that's that enlightened state. It's been so much fun, Kate, visiting with you, corresponding with you and visiting oh. with you. I was thinking prior to this, you know. We should probably put it off a month because then we could continue to correspond with one another. And uh, well, it's been fun corresponding. I don't want it to end. I, I... Oh, but we can keep, we can continue to do that. I've enjoyed so much. I really, I want you to know that it's just been, it's been great fun from when you sent that first note and, uh, and uh, yeah, it's just definitely kindred spirits. Fred, it has been a joy and it has been an honor and it has, I, it has just been, you have been a light in my inbox. Like this correspondence has meant more to me, I think, than, than I could convey to you with words, which I know you'll understand. I do. And I feel the same way, Kate. It's been fabulous, you know, to, yeah, just to see the things that, um, 
the thing the things that you write about and think about i get a kick out of it for sure and i mean that in a good way right no you know, I, i'm taking I mean, it that way like, uh, i just think this is really this is this is really cute it's neat you know it's just neat <laughs> i love it Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast. If what you found resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts? This act of reciprocity helps others find Mind, Body, and Soil. If you're looking for more, you can find us at groundworkcollective.com and at Kate underscore Kavanaugh, that's K-A-T-E underscore K-A-V-A-N-A-U-G-H on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right, All Right for the clips from their beautiful song Over the Edge from their album The Crucible. You can find them at All Right, All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music.